0: So today, we, we really have a, a unique opportunity, and we get to talk about a major doctrine of the church, and, and this really is you know unique because normally we work through uh, books of the Bible. So a lot of people who come to Rooted know that we like to um, preach expositionally, and the idea behind that is that uh, we want to preach the whole counsel of God, and part of that is working our way through every verse, not just the ones we like. And seeing what God has to say to His people, not only in its original context, but also to His people today. Um, and so, typically, that's what we're doing. We're working through a book, but as you know, we're, we've come to the end of our, our study of 1 Peter. And uh, now, in the in-between period, I've been given the opportunity to sort of pick a sermon. And uh, I, would, I would be dishonest if I said that I'm not drawn to preach to myself. And so, as I thought about what to preach... I just thought, what areas of my life do I need reminding? And uh, without a doubt, the first thing that comes to mind is prayer. So, what I want to focus on today is obviously we want to hear from God's word. We want to talk about the most popular prayer ever told, um, and this is a difficult topic because you know, I don't know. Prayer is just not one that that is easily come by. Uh, Brother Mike said earlier that. Prayer is like working a muscle. It takes time, practice, and, and I really like that. I want to ask you, you know, do any of these situations describe you? Because I'll just go ahead and say, it. I could start off with a story. I could you know, illustrate the problem, but I don't think the problem of prayer in our lives is too elusive for us. I think when most of us think about it, we know how hard prayer is. Maybe you're just too busy for prayer. You want to pray, but, uh, you know, the mornings escape you. You just never seem to get to it. The only time you seem to think about prayer is when you're walking out the door and say, man, I should have gotten up earlier. And you'll say you pray later, but the day gets busy and you don't. Some of you may have been burned by prayer. Maybe you've prayed, even begged God for something, and you lament the fact that he's never answered. Maybe you're in an occasional prayer, right? You believe in prayer, but it seems to only exist in your life when crisis arrive. Maybe, this is the one we don't like to talk about, you're skeptical of prayer. Prayer seems a little too mystical, like I'm supposed to talk to God in secret? Isn't it just talking to the air? This is something we keep close to ourselves because, frankly, we just don't understand it. Or simply you neglect it for sort of a mixture of these things. And really, I mean, this is what I'm getting at. The fact is is that we neglect prayer regularly. I tried to look up some statistics on this, and all of them were extremely depressing. Um, The fact is is that, and maybe I'm wrong in saying this, but I, I think I might be right, that perhaps the disease the church suffers from most in America is prayerlessness. And this is you know, hard to, to reckon with the fact that Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. Jesus, the same way. The fact is, we were made for prayer. I mean, just imagine in your own life, what, what are you trying to fill the, the prayer hole in your life with? For some of us, it might be you know, a desire to connect with the transcendent, right? We might be, maybe not prayer, but maybe we focus on something like meditation. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm thinking now in the culture, right, in the non-believing world that I'm surrounded by, that you're surrounded by, people want a, a connection with something transcendent. And so they fill it with a study of themselves. Maybe they dive headfirst into worship. Here's, here's the question. Why is, why is it the fact that prayer, something so central to the Christian life, is something we struggle so profoundly to do? My urgent desire for you today, Rooted Church and guests, is that I hope, just I hope that you'll see prayer with renewed eyes. I want to walk through the most well-known prayer of all time, and I want you to know, by the way, that Jesus has anticipated all those struggles I've talked about. He knows how you struggle intimately, better than you do, and he's offered help. And so that's where we turn, Matthew 6, 5 through 15. And what I want to show us today, here's the key idea, if you're going to write something down. True Christian prayer is the result of Christ-enabled confidence in our Heavenly Father. I'll say it again. It's a little wordy, but i got to pack it all in there. True Christian prayer is the result of, of Christ enabled confidence in our heavenly father to state it maybe more effectively the effective satisfying life energizing world changing prayer that we all desire is the result of this infatuation this focus on Christ and how he enables us to have pure and unrestrained confidence in our relationship to god there's quite a few ways to break down this prayer, but here's how I've done it. Uh, Jesus's model prayer. Uh, well, I would just say I've, I've broken down this sermon into number one, the basis of prayer; number two, the content of prayer; and number three, the result of prayer. All right, so let's let's dig in. First, um, we got to talk about the basis of prayer, really the foundation, the bedrock of why we pray, and and Jesus. Is so helpful because he, he gives us a couple of examples of what not to make the basis of prayer. Look at verse 5. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. What we see here is prayer on the basis of personal pride. Do you see this? The word hypocrite, it's supposed to, you know, today we we think of hypocrite and we just think of someone who's, um, you know, talks out of both sides of their mouth. And that's part of it. But back in the first century, calling someone a hypocrite was a much more serious thing. It encapsulated the person's entire identity. So to refer to a hypocrite, you were almost referring to actors in a play, that they portrayed a, a certain personality that didn't actually reflect who they were. And these hypocrites, these actors, they did it in public places. They prayed loudly for all to hear in places of worship. That's what a synagogue is, a Jewish place of worship. And you know what's interesting? Jesus says they received their reward. And if you've ever wondered what that is, it's not abstract. It's right there in the text. It says that they may be seen by others. They've received that reward. They wanted praise. They received praise from men. What's the problem here? Is this passage about prayer location? No. No, I mean, yes, we're told to go pray in secret, close the door. But the fact is, is even Jesus prayed publicly He prayed in front of his disciples. No, what's going on here, Jesus is saying that prayer requires a pure motivation. Prayer motivated by a desire to impress men will get you just that, the praise of men. And this is why we're told to go into the room and shut the door and pray. You see, the basis of prayer cannot be personal pride because it won't get you God in the end. When we pray in secret, we reveal what we're really there for. In front of everyone, We're there for God. We need a better basis for prayer. And uh, thankfully, Jesus, he gets us there. But one other way, one other example of what a good basis of prayer is not, and that is in verse 7 and 8. And we'll read there. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. All right, this one is, is not as obvious as the last one, um, but what we see here is prayer on the basis of personal control. You see the phrase here that says heap up empty phrases, it's probably better translated as, you know, do not babble. It's, and it's not just mindless, you know, entirely mindless babbling. It's an intense babbling. It, it evokes... Um, it should evoke an understanding that these people were praying, perhaps in a mystical language of an ancient religion. Nevertheless, they were empty phrases. Some of them even thought that they would be heard for their many words. Both in Jewish and pagan times, or in pagan tradition, God could be coerced by the length of your prayer. The more words you pray, the more likely God is to hear you. And this is an important part of the historical context that I think we miss when we read this text. And that is, today we don't really struggle with a culture that's obsessed with pagan deities. But back then, in the first century, in the time of Jesus' disciples, when he preached this sermon, it was all the rage. People were obsessed with pleasing the deities of ancient Greece, of Rome. And what that meant was, is that their deities were much like us. They were malleable, impressionable. They could be coerced and convinced. In fact, people saw prayer as uh, merely a way of trying to bend the will of the gods in their favor. But that's not what the God of Christianity is like. That's not what the God of the Bible is like at all. Jesus rejects this view. He does so in this passage by saying that um, prayer was an attempt not to manipulate God, Or that lengthy prayers filled with gibberish or memorized formulas could coerce him to act. No, rather, God already knows what you want. God's already established his sovereign will. He can't be be bent to your will. You see, the basis here that they're trying to erect is about control. They think that they can control the gods to respond in the way they want to. But the basis of prayer can't be control like this because God can't be coerced. He can't be convinced of anything. He already knows everything. He is all-knowing. He knows what you need. Thus, once again, we need a better basis for prayer. So what is it? What really is the basis for prayer? All right. Well, Jesus has given us two examples of what it's not, thankfully. But he actually has given us an incredible basis of prayer. And if you're not careful, you'll just skip right over it. Why? Because we all say it a lot when we kneel down to pray. And that's the beginning of the model prayer. He starts off by saying, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. You know, I don't think we quite realize how radical this was. I mean, before Jesus, it was just absolutely unheard of for people to refer to God as Father. It's in some ways understandable to believe that Jesus, the God-man... The Son of God Himself would be able to call God Father, but for Him to invite us through this model prayer to take part in that is really an incredible thing. It would have been shocking to the hearers. It would have been shocking to those from Pharisaical backgrounds, those that were part of the, uh, the religious culture, the religious hierarchy back then. The Greek term here for Father is actually, it, it, it reflects an Aramaic word um, that many of you probably know, uh, which is Abba. Jesus, at times, refers to God as Abba. This Aramaic term really has a meaning more intimate than just Father. It's, um, I've read a lot on this, and you'll hear various interpretations. It's very difficult to nail down exactly what it means. But I think the best, um, the best translation to sort of what we understand would probably something be something like Papa. Papa. Um, it's intimate. It, it it inquires a sense of uh, personal investment and care that saying just purely "Father" it just doesn't quite get across exactly what's going on there. The other thing that's important to know is that Jesus demonstrates this. You know, you don't even have to hear the word "Abba" to know of this intimate relationship Jesus has with the Father. He demonstrates it. He he refers to God as Father more than anything else when he prays. In fact, only one time does he not refer to God in prayer as Father, and that is when he's on the cross. And see, throughout his ministry, he does this. He wakes up early in the morning. He he disappears for long periods of time to pray, to have communion with the Father. And again, he's inviting us to be a part of that. I just want you to realize how, how odd that must have seemed to the original audience. All right, well, what does it mean? What does it mean? Why am I saying that this is the basis for prayer, knowing God as Father? Well, I want to turn your attention to another passage of Scripture because what it'll do is it'll expand on this idea of Father because the temptation when you read this is that, oh, you know, I call God Father and that just gives me a warm and fuzzy feeling of family. But that's, I mean, that doesn't even scratch the surface of what this really reveals. If you have your Bibles, turn with me briefly to Galatians Galatians 3. We'll be looking at verses 25 and moving on into chapter 4. I'll give you a second to get there. The idea here in Galatians 3 is that Paul is going to expand on this idea of what it means to be a child of God. And I want you to listen for key words that talk about what that family relationship really is like. It's so much more than just the warm, fuzzy feeling of knowing God is our dad in heaven. It's so much more than that. Listen now to Galatians 3:25, verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, when we pray our Father, we're acknowledging much more than just a relational standing with him. We've been adopted into the family of God. And this is a gift. This is a gift bought with the precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And this is the true basis of prayer. It's why Jesus invites us to acknowledge God in this way. You see, this is prayer based, or prayer on the basis of adoption. We're heirs with Christ. We have access to God through Christ. Do you realize what it means to pray our Father? It's not just that warm, cuddly feeling I was talking about. As soon as you say our Father in heaven, you have to think about all that Jesus has done for you, You have to consider the cost of what Jesus bore on the cross in order for you and me to come to address God as Father. Our Father is so much more than just that relational standing, the result, our praying to Him as Father, the basis of our prayer is a result of the gospel. If you want a paradigm-shifting moment to sort of unlock prayer for you, the possibilities in prayer, I want to... I want to argue something that might sound obvious when I say it, but I really want you to think about it. Prayer and the gospel are inseparable. Prayer for the believer and the gospel of Jesus Christ are inseparable. Because like the gospel, we come to God utterly helpless. We can't help ourselves. We don't know what to pray for. We don't know what we need. But Christ makes a way for us. Do you know why we pray in Jesus' name? We pray in Jesus' name because Christ stands as our advocate before God. He gives us access through his blood-bought redemption, his sacrifice. It gives us a connection to God like never before. Until you have that in mind as you pray, I'd argue you're not, well, you're likely not really praying. Tim Keller, uh, a pastor, former pastor, he puts it like this. I really, I love this quote. He says, our prayer must be in full, grateful awareness that our access to God as Father is a free gift, won by the costly sacrifice of Jesus, the true Son, and then enacted in us by the Holy Spirit, who helps us know inwardly that we are His children. To pray in Jesus' name is not meant to be some magic formula, as if it's the uh, pronunciation of the words um, that will coerce God's power or mechanically tap into some supernatural force. No, Jesus' name is shorthand for his divine person and saving work. To come to the Father in Jesus' name, not our own, is to come fully cognizant that we are being heard because of the costly grace in which we stand. This is one principle of prayer that makes it possible to be heard by God, even though no one can fully Uh, No one can follow all the other guidelines and rules as we should. So do you see why true Christian prayer is the result of this Christ-enabled confidence we have in our Heavenly Father? This really is the the key to prayer, to understanding what prayer is. This is sort of the focus of, of the model prayer, is that Christ enables us to have a confidence in our prayers that otherwise is impossible. But He not only enables us to have confidence when we pray, But Christ also enables us to have confidence that God will answer them in the way best for us. I would argue that most of us struggle with prayer because we've unknowingly prayed on a different basis. Not on the basis of our adoption. Not on the basis of our salvation in Christ. Perhaps you've prayed on the basis of a spiritual checkbox. This is one I struggle with. I pray because it's on the to-do list. I pray because it's part of the Christian life. I've got to do it. I've got to pray. God tells me to pray. I'm supposed to pray. Oh my goodness. I get up in the morning, pray, Matt. You know, (laughs) I just end up not being any more genuine than the Pharisees. I become a legalist. I say, if I pray, I'm holy. God loves me. He values me. And That's just not true. I pray because Christ has given me unprecedented access to the Father. And this is great news, because now if you, if you want to pray, really pray. You don't have to be anxious about God or whether God's going to listen. You're his child. He sees you as Christ. He sees you in the way that Christ relates to him. He sees you as his son and his daughter. God listens to his children. A good father always listens to his children. So don't think for one second if you've been redeemed by the son that you can approach God in your sin and your struggles are going to keep you from him. You can't. You won't, be, you won't be kept from him. You've been adopted. I know I've sat on this idea for a while. This really is the basis of prayer. If I want you to remember anything, it's that. This, you know, this gospel and prayer is inseparable. I don't know why. I've always seen the gospel and prayer as these sort of like far-off concepts. I know that the gospel, you know, is sort of the the fountain at which all motivation and all the Christian life flows, you know, but in practice, I've never really seen the the gospel as central to my prayer life. I've just never seen it that way. I just thought, oh, prayer is just something people do. All right, so we've talked about the basis of prayer. We need to remember that as we go through this, because now I want that to color the way you see All these things Jesus tells us about the content of our prayers, all right? Now that we have the the basis of our prayer, our adoption, we're sons, we have confidence, unhindered access. All right, well, what's the content of our prayer? Well, he says, number one, hallowed be your name. For those that don't know, hallowed is the verb form of holy. To hallow something is to see it and regard it as separate and otherly. It's to regard it as what it truly is. And to hallow someone's name, well, in the Bible language, the name is who someone is. It's their essence. It sounds weird today. We don't say that kind of, we don't use that type of language here in the modern day. But the fact is, is to hallow someone's name really means that we're praying that God's name and thus his essential being should be regarded as holy in the thoughts and conduct of those who have been created in his image. I want you to think about this. We pray these things like, again, checkbox, hallowed be your name. I want you to think about this. What are we praying? We're praying that God, that God ensures that his name is hallowed, that his name is regarded as holy. In other words, God is the means. Right? We're praying for this, but God is the means himself of his name being regarded as holy. Don't forget that when you pray. He says, your kingdom come. What kingdom God's kingdom, the kingdom that was ushered in when Christ came and died and was raised again, the kingdom that will be consummated when Christ returns. In other words, when we say, God, your kingdom come, what we're praying is that the consummation of God's kingdom to the second coming of Jesus would come. Have you ever heard someone say, pray or pray, you know, come quickly, Lord? The idea here is... Uh, Closely rooted was a subject of theology called eschatology. I know I've talked about it before in, in a sermon, but I want to make sure that we're clear. It's a big word, you know, it's a cool word of the day. But it comes from the Greek word eschaton, meaning last things. Ology means study of. So eschatology is the study of the last things. It's referring to what Paul would regard to as just that day, the day where Christ returns and we're united with him. When we pray, Jesus is saying, pray that God's name would be regarded as holy and pray that his kingdom would come, that Christ would return and that this broken world would finally be repaired. But remember, God is the means of that kingdom coming. God will make it happen. He says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will, God's desire for the world, his plan, his sovereign plan for the world. When we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're saying is, is that God's desires and plan for the world would be fulfilled on earth with the same immediacy and completeness as it is now already fulfilled in heaven. And guess what? Once again, God is the means of his will being done. But do you mean, I mean, really think about this. So we've talked, uh, I realize now that I've skipped over a couple headings, but um, the point really what I want to make here is that in the content of prayer, we see different types of prayer emerge. Hallowed be your name could be regarded as adoration, adoring God for who he is, adoring his name for who he is. That's, of course, some personal application of, of asking God to hallow his own name and, and see his name be regarded as holy. But saying, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is, a, this is an act of submission. And I don't think many of us are really prepared <laughs> most days to, um, to really believe or, or, or want what, what that means. That means that when we go to God and pray, and we say, God, your will be done. It's a, it's a total relieving of, of what we think is right. It's a, it's a total of a release of saying, God, this is how things need to go. It's easy to say that, you know, but think about it. Think about how hard that is. We think we know better. So many of us think we know better. In the prayer, we also see confession. He says in verse 11, And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. This one's difficult. I'll just be honest. Um, One one note of clarification here, the term debt here is referring to sin. It's not financial. We know this because um, in a similar prayer in Luke, Luke correctly interprets debt as sin. Uh, And so if we believe that Scripture interprets Scripture and we believe God's Word to be um, self-referential and infallible, and we do then we can trust that debt here is in reference to sin. So we're asking God to forgive our sins. But what makes it so hard is the second phrase, and it's really caused quite a bit of debate in church history. I'm just going to let you know. Um, And it says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. If you're not careful, (laughs) if you're not careful, it sounds like you're saying, God, forgive our sins because we've forgiven others. If you're not careful, some people have interpreted that way, but that's that's not what's evident in the text here, but it is difficult to translate. Here's, here's what you need to know. The scholars have debated this, and, and there's thankfully a, a, a consensus. That here, when we ask God to forgive our sins, like we also forgave the sins of others, we're praying that the mercy with which God forgives us will correspond to the mercy that we are supposed to forgive others. There's a sort of a correspondence, I think back to the book of James, you know, where, where James talks about faith without works is dead. They exist together simultaneously. It's not a. Um, it's not as if faith comes because we do our works, right? No, but faith is the evidence, or our works is the evidence of our faith. Just like our forgiveness of others is the evidence of God's forgiveness for us. But again, remember, God's the one who forgives. God's the one who forgives. And he can forgive. We also see um, a petition. We see petitions. We've seen submission, adoration, confession. We see petition. We ask God for things. Really, all of these are petitions. It says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Really, this should evoke a memory to to Matthew 4, where Jesus is led into the wilderness and goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the word evil here is really... uh, It's it's impossible to know because the the Greek word for evil um, is identical to evil one. So there's debate as to whether this is just referring to a generic evil, that which is not from God, or if it's referring to the evil one, meaning Satan. Um, I tend to believe that this is referring to Satan because this passage is very similar and parallel to Matthew 4. Um, And I think that perhaps uh, Jesus is is trying to evoke a memory of the, the temptation in Matthew 4. However, at the end of the day, it really doesn't change our position in regards to it. We should pray that God not lead us into a situation in where we'd be exposed to Satan's tempting work, whether from him directly or the temptation of evil in the world. When Jesus is telling us to pray or how Jesus is telling us to pray. He, he wants us to reflect constantly on our dependence on God. And so here, what he's asking is, is that we not be led into temptation in the way Jesus was. He could handle it. We likely can't. But it also says, but deliver us from evil. It seems to imply that sometimes we will be in the presence of evil, in the presence of the evil one. And God has the power to deliver us. He has the power to make us into something, Which leads me to the last point or part of this sermon, which is the result of prayer. I want you to think back to this passage here on forgiveness. It's, in fact, this, this whole idea of forgiveness is so important that there's even some commentary in verses 14 and 15 about, about it. It's, it's so important that it's given further explanation. You see, a person who is repentant seeks to forgive others. And he says in verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is a scary verse, if you really understand it. This is a scary verse because what it tells us is, is that lack of forgiveness, is a fun, it, it really is a, it's a fundamental betrayal of what a, a true understanding of the gospel is which is a total submission to the fact that we have been forgiven of so much. We've, we've so sinned against God that to look at our fellow man and to regard their sin against us as worse would be to prove that we don't actually understand God's forgiveness. So what's the result of prayer? Well, you know what? It actually implies that God can make us into someone who can forgive you see, this isn't, just, this isn't just a thing like, oh, how do, how do I pray? Oh, let me just, you know, get, get my list together of these, you know, submission, adoration, confession. Ultimately, prayer changes us. You got to, you know, and if, if what I said earlier, the basis of prayer is true, that we really are adopted, then all the other implications of that adoption, our sanctification, it's true also. Implied in this model prayer is that God has the power through prayer to change us. We ask God to make us into people who can forgive. Verse 13, we ask God to make us into people who can withstand the schemes of the evil one. You see, in the past, um, I prayed these things with a sense of wonder of what would happen. That's really been a big problem with my prayer, is it just felt like, I did it, and I didn't really know. I was like, God knows, but what, you know, whatever. It's out there. It wasn't until I connected the gospel to prayer that I realized these, these prayers are really just an affirmation of what God has already promised me in Christ. You see, true Christian prayer, the one that we all want in our prayer lives, true, real Christian prayer, confident Christian prayer, it only comes when we realize that Christ has enabled us to have confidence that our Holy Father is for us. He's, he's advocating for us. I like this quote from a, a professor of mine at Southeastern. He says, when Jesus, when his disciples pray, he wants them to reflect constantly on their dependence on God for everything. Their survival, their salvation, and their sanctification So that God, when he provides their daily bread, gracious forgiveness, and rescue from the temptation to which they would have otherwise succumbed without Christ, they will remember and be reminded of all the good things that come from him and grant him the praise he is due. I've come to realize, you know, let me close by saying this. Um, I've come to realize that our inability to pray as we ought to really stems from our forgetting or rejecting the work of Christ preceding prayer. That's, I mean, that's really where our, our prayer falls apart. At least for me, that's how my prayers fall apart. If you want to pray, you've got to remember these things. You've got to remember, God loves you. He is a loving Father. You've been adopted into His family, and with that, you become an heir, and you have unhindered access to Him. You know, I invite you, Rude Church, guests here, I want you to experiment with me. This is, again, I'm sort of preaching to myself here this morning. You know, I want you to experiment with me. You know, the renewal I want in my prayer life, it's not going to be accomplished by the mere act of prayer, uh, but true communion with the God within it. So will you guys just, you know, experiment with me today, even today in your life. Just remember, I just ask you, remember the gospel in your prayers. Remember what it means for you as God's child. And uh, we'll see what that what that produces. I have a feeling it's going to bring about the renewal we we want so badly. Finally, because I'm, I skipped over it, I want to make sure that you know Jesus didn't when he when he preached this. By the way, he didn't forget to mention our daily bread, like I did. <laughs> so. Um, What's well, important to know because again i want to preach the full text i want to know you know this is god's word it's important to remember that um when he says give us this day our daily bread he is actually talking about food every, every virtually every bible scholar agrees on this he's talking about real sustenance this is so foreign to us now by the way <laughs> you know we're just sort of like you know hey we, we've got you know groceries for the week but it, you know it really should make you think back to you know the manna in exodus the people wandering in the wilderness God provides the manna for his people, for the nation of Israel. But you know what he says? He doesn't say, here, here's an abundance of manna. Load up your cupboard. Right? No, he says, no, take only today's worth of manna that you need. Leave the rest. Just today's. The only exception to that was on the Lord's day. Um, On the Sabbath, they would would gather, uh, the day before they would gather too, so that they wouldn't have to work on the Sabbath. But The point is this, God has designed us to be daily reliant on him. And I think another reason our prayers fail, by the way, is because we don't have a daily reliance on God. We treat our spiritual needs like we do our food. We think, let me just handle all of this. Let me just handle all of my spiritual needs. Uh, Let me just deal with this topic, you know, so that it'll just last me a lifetime. The fact is, no, every day there's new trials, there's new struggles, and God intends for you... To rely on Him for your most basic necessities every single day. All right, last thing. I encourage you guys, when you pray, the next time you pray, I want you to slow down. I want you to pray like you mean it. I want you to pray like God is really your Father, that Christ has enabled you. And I, want you to, I just want you to believe every word you say. And then I want you to remember what you've prayed and just watch God work. So let's practice now. I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to do the best thing we could possibly do, and that is we're going to reflect on Christ's sacrifice by taking of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Um, Jesus has given us an incredible reminder. We have an amazing basis for prayer, Lord. Father, Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful, Lord, that you you can't and, and you don't fail us like Many fathers here do on earth. God, you're good. And you're holy. Lord, you're set apart. God, I just ask, would you help us? Would you help us to, to be renewed in our prayer? Would you help us see you with fresh eyes? And God, would you cause us, would you cause us to come after you, to seek you in our prayer lives more Than ever. God, we we trust that this is true and we trust that you can do it because of Christ's sacrifice. He has given us access to you and you are listening. Help us to believe that, God. Help us to believe that. Help us to believe it now as we take the bread and the cup that we be reminded of Christ's sacrifice and all it means for us, not just in prayer but in all of our practice, all of our Christian living. Oh Lord, we need your help. Come quickly. Until then, be with us now in Jesus' name, amen.